We can't just be plain consultants anymore. We have to actually enter the operational field and try to support early stage startups. Crisis. Public debt crises in Greece, uh, then Ireland, then Portugal, Spain, and of course, at the end mm -hmm. of the day, you have to, you know, sink or swim, right? You've got to either uh, put on your bathing suit and dive into the water and start trying to invest in that country, or you should not. So if I'm an accountant, I would be thinking right now, wow, you know, in five years, within five years, you know, the very operating fabric of my sector is going to change. How am I going to respond to that? Hi, and welcome to Angel Talks, a podcast that provides exclusive insights into the world of angel investing. I am your host, Sona Vezirian, director at Bana Angels, a pioneering angel investing network with over five years of experience in the field. We have 26 startups in our portfolio and prominent angel investors from all over the world. You can learn more about us at bana.am. Here at Angel Talks, we are gathering with distinguished investors who share their experiences, personal stories, tips and tricks to help you start doing angel investing or become better at it. I am honored to have Philip Ammerman as my guest. Philip brings years of experience in investment consultancy and startup advisory. Philip is a co-founder and managing partner at Navigator Consulting Group, which implemented over 400 projects in 45 countries in 6.5 billion euros invested resources. Uh, Philip has 11 startups in his portfolio as an angel investor. In this episode, we will uh, dive into Philip's personal story, how he started angel investing, how he started investing outside of his market, and uh, what investors, angel investors should do to support their startups. So let's start. Hi, Philip. Thank you for being my guest today. Good evening. It's great to be here. So uh, let's learn a little more about you. Can you please tell us your background, your education? What have you been doing in earlier your life? Absolutely. So I studied uh, geology and economics at Princeton University uh, a long time before the, uh, the World Wide Web existed. Uh, I started my professional career working for a German consultancy in the area of mergers and acquisitions, organizational restructuring and privatization. Uh, and I worked on some very interesting projects uh, with the uh, reunification of Germany, the reconstruction of Eastern Europe, um, investments which were taking place in countries like Lithuania or Ukraine or South Africa. In 1995, I decided to set up my own company. Uh, it's called Navigator Consulting. And the year that we established, that I and my partners established the company, also happened to be the year that the Netscape Navigator and the Internet Explorer web browsers were launched, or at least became more popular. And that was kind of the beginning of the web 1.0 boom. So the, the initial uh, rise and, and, uh, and, and rapid expansion of uh, the first iteration of the World Wide Web. Yes, interesting. So uh, what does your, your company do, Navigator? 
We work primarily in three areas. The first is classic investment advisory, uh, acting as a consultant in areas like uh, commercial, technical and financial due diligence, uh, writing business plans, developing financial models, uh, risk analysis, scenario planning, um, and, and everything related to that. Uh, in the second area, um, we've, we've started investing in startups. So we support uh, technology startups pretty much across Europe. Um, and in the third area, we uh, essentially help co companies improve uh, and, and, and develop their performance either uh, prior to an investment or after an investment. And that can, again, that can be in the, what we call the real economy area. So, you know, things like agri-food, uh, food processing, industri industry, manufacturing, uh, building materials, and so on and so forth. Or it can be in, in, in the technology sector. So in, it can either be tech startups or established tech firms which are scaling up. Uh, can you please elaborate a little on what does um, investment advisory or investment consulting include in itself? Like what's its uh, functions? Yeah, great question. So um, very often when, um, you know, in a transaction, we have what we call the buy side or the sell side. So the sell side are the owners of an asset that either want to sell it or they want to attract an investment, which can be an equity investment or it can be a loan. Uh, and the buy side are the people who are essentially making the equity investment or offering a loan. And an investment advisor is typically called in to help the two sides uh, resolve the valuation of a situation and the future mm -hmm. um, development of, a, of an investment situation or an investment transaction. So, for example, if I'm working on behalf of an investment bank, I'm typically asked to, to evaluate a company, to look at its, its strategy its competitiveness, its business processes, its profitability, uh, its competitive situation to see if over a period of time, typically seven to 10 years, you know, it can survive, it can prosper, it can meet the objectives of its business plan. If I'm contracted by the sell side, it's typically to prepare the business plan and the financial model and to attract fundraising, or it can be to negotiate the terms of a loan uh, or an equity investment. So essentially, um, what we try to do is we try to work on behalf of both parties uh, to make sure that all of the risks, all of the dimensions of, of an investment are clear, that there's a common understanding of risks and opportunities moving forward, and a common understanding of value and uh, valuation in what the company is doing. Yeah, very interesting. And um, how uh, you started doing angel investing, like how the path took you to that that way? So uh, from 1995 to 2010, uh, my colleagues and I were working very intensively just on what we call standard consulting. So just, you know, working as consultants. And you recall there was a big financial crisis in 2008, a global financial crisis, which metastasized in 2010 into the beginning of the Greek financial crisis, which touched off the European financial crisis. So there were debt crisis, public debt crises in Greece, uh, then Ireland, then Portugal, Spain, and a larger crisis was averted by very concerted EU uh, efforts. At that time, uh, my partners and I said that if we really want to make a difference, we can't just be plain consultants anymore. We have to actually enter the operational field and try to support early stage startups. And why do we want to do that? Well, because on the one hand, we're idealists. We feel that uh, 
you know, we're Europeans, we, we should try to support each other, we should try to support um, a, a new type of future, a future which is one, you know, a little bit younger, a little bit more entrepreneurial, more innovative. Um, but on the other hand, we also had lots of ideas of our own and we had lots of industry contacts. We had lots of, and, and we still have lots of uh, professional skills. And it was interesting for us to see how we can merge all of this experience, all of these contacts, uh, to try to help new, either new startups or even our own startups, our, our spin-offs, as we say. And that was basically the, the decision we made. Um, uh, our decision initially was to support one startup spin-off or social entrepreneurship case between 2010 and 2020. And we largely completed that. And in 2020, we extended our term until 2030. So we're still very much uh, interested in supporting young, dynamic entrepreneurs um, who are out there to make a real change and uh, you know, try to do something better for the countries they live in and for the, the sectors that they're operating in. Um, yeah, it seems like you are very hands-on investor. So you invest only in one startup for a year and you try to support them with all the resources you have. So that's very interesting strategy. Um, do, do you have any a success story you would like to share with us of, or an interesting startup in your portfolio? Uh, that you would like to tell us about what they do, how they're doing? Yeah, I've recently uh, invested and decided to support a, uh, a Cypriot entrepreneur uh, that took place in October, November of last year of 2022. The company is called Mina Technologies. It focuses on developing intelligent ordering systems for hotels, restaurants, cafes, bars, uh, but also other types of uh, organizations in this space. And essentially, by mixing a blend of technology and uh, software, we're able to accelerate the order cycle, uh, improve the flow of data and the use of data for uh, functions like loyalty, analytics, uh, CRM. Uh, and we do this in such a way that we don't really take away from the job of a waiter or the, you know, the human wait staff, but in fact, we support them. So, um, you know, they have... <laughs> less less kilometers to walk every evening. They can focus their time more on uh, guest development and, and, and you know, developing relations with customers. And at the same time, we provide owners with a very strong uh, suite of analytics. Um, and the win side, of course, is also for customers because they can wait a lot less, um, you know, to, to, to get an order or to pay, and they can have then a superior experience um, at a lot of these hotels or restaurants. So... Um, I, I'm, I'm very proud of the progress that uh, both the founder has made and also I'm very, very interested by the sector that this, uh, this uh, startup is occupying. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Philip, very much um, for telling us about you. And uh, we'll be back for the second part uh, to learn about what angels should do to support their startups uh, to make sure they are successful. Uh, so, Philip, uh, taking into consideration your experience, uh, can you tell us how angel investors can support uh, their portfolio startups to ensure uh, they are becoming a successful ones? A great question, and there's a lot of different answers. <laughs> I think um, 
I mean, the, the, the answer is, is really not about finance at all. Uh, the finance that an angel investor extends to a startup is mainly a show of confidence and it should lead to greater discipline on the part of the startup. So, I mean, the finance is important. I mean, the, the cash amount is important, but what's really important is that it is, it's a tangible sign that someone trusts the founder and the founding team to implement their plan. And in exchange, there has to be some sort of discipline. So sticking to the plan, communicating with the angel, uh, evaluating, um, you know, successes and failures uh, and so on and so forth. Different angels have different philosophies. Some angels say, we're just going to extend the, the finance and it's up to you, you know, to grow the company. And we just want periodic progress reports or we want to sit in on a, you know, a quarterly uh, board meeting or something like that. And that's the, you know, that, that's one approach. It's a perfectly valid um, approach. In the case of my partners and I, we prefer to take a more uh, active approach in supporting the startup because we understand that we have skills and experience which can be useful um, at different stages of, of, of the growth cycle. Um, we've lived through situations uh, where we or our clients have ignored a lot of these situations and have you know paid dearly for them. Um, but at the same time, we have the industry contacts to actually help a startup make uh, that much more progress towards its goal of you know, developing the minimum viable product, launching it, uh, developing it, and then you know, trying to get to a, a stage of, uh, of, of sales takeoff or of, of rapid sales growth. So for example, some of the things we do are uh, we help with governance and governance structures. Um, it's very important to understand how decisions will be made, both as a small team of founders, but then also as you start allowing um, you know, multiple external investors to come in and finance the company. The more external capital that comes in, the more oversight is required. And so you need to have typically a functioning board of directors. You need to have a form of communicating decisions uh, and you need to have the governance structure, which tells you how certain issues will be solved. So, for example, if, um, you know, if a new investor comes and wants to buy 100 percent of equity, how will the decision be made? If one of the founders wants to leave the team, uh, what happens to the shareholding? Who has the right of first refusal or the right of first access on the shareholding? Uh, we pay a lot of attention to the legal contracts and the liability, which may be uh, embedded in the product or service which is being offered. And again, very often, most founders are just so happy to create, they, they might not consider, you know, uh, what are some of the liability issues they may face if a service goes wrong or if a product fails, you know, or, or something like that takes place. In more mundane areas, we, we serve as a sounding board. We serve as a reality check. Um, we try to encourage and support the founders wherever possible. It's, it's very lonely being an entrepreneur. There's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. There are many times when you stay awake at night, unable to sleep because you're not sure if you can, you know, do payroll or you're confronted with, you know, major decisions. So I think one of the main benefits we bring is the benefit of experience of being a friendly resource to rely on uh, in this type of context. Um, but, you know, it, it comes back to what I said originally. I think the main thing that we offer is we offer trust and we offer support. And I think that is that's very important today. Uh, given the way the way the world is going. Yeah, taking into consideration your background, you're actually offering a lot. 
And I believe that's a really uh, win situation for a founder who is like product obsessed, you know, and they don't want to deal with other stuff, kind of. Yeah. Uh, other stuff, which eventually becomes like really uh, important stuff. Yes, you're right. You're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, from your background, we learned that you invested and worked with uh, in different countries. Uh, yeah. How how one should start investing outside of their borders? Uh, it has different aspects like mental, uh, psychological, and also physical aspect. Like people want to deal with the people they met in real life. And it creates a lot of difficulties. But from your experience, like why, uh, how should uh, someone who is willing to seek opportunities outside of their markets uh, start doing that? Great question. Um, I guess the easy answer is you have to take nothing for granted because what you consider as being a normal operating situation in your home country is probably going to be very, very different in another country. So, for example, um, I, I live in Cyprus, which is an EU member state, but right now I'm investing in Germany, which is another EU member state. The tax system, the legal system, um, the government system in Germany, the consumers in Germany are totally different. Uh, and so if, you know, if, if you're going to make assumptions that everything is the same or everything is equivalent, very probably you're going to you're you will be faced with disappointment at some point uh early on so i would say the first point is you've got to prepare you have to uh you know get online look up the tax system try to get briefed a little bit on the legal system on some of the challenges say of opening a bank account maintaining a bank account uh, complying with local regulations on things like everything from anti-money laundering to know your customer uh, requirements. Um, if you're dependent on financing in that country, you have to understand what the financiers are looking for and what conditionality they're going to place uh, on the investment. You obviously need to look at the market and not just at the market in theoretical terms, but in transaction terms. So for example, if I want to sell an electric motorcycle in Germany, I need to understand exactly how that transaction is going to take place, starting with what is my liability for the motorcycle? Am I going to sell it directly or through a distributor who is responsible for the after sale service and the warranty terms? Um, if something on the motorcycle breaks, who's going to replace it? Who's going to maintain it and how much will that cost? Um, and so on and so forth. So you, you just can't take things for granted. You really have to investigate them to the, to the maximum extent possible. And part of this process also is getting feedback from multiple sources. I would say never trust a single source of information. Mm. Try to check what that source is telling you, yeah. at least one or two um, other sources. And, uh, you know, there's, um, there's Murphy's Law, right, which says that uh, whatever, whatever uh, can go wrong will go wrong. And I have something called Ammerman's Law, which is simply that everything will go <laughs> wrong. <laughs> it's not to say I'm a pessimist. It's just to say that for every, every decision you make, it's a good idea to have weighed that decision carefully and to have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C uh, for as many of these things as you can. Um, so that's just, a, you know, that's just like a, a, a very brief intro. Of course, at the end mm -hmm. of the day, you have to, you know, sink or swim, right? You've got to either 
put on your bathing suit and dive into the water and start trying to invest in that country, or you should not if you're not confident, you know. Um, but by all means, don't do things because of pressure. Do not make decisions because of fear of missing out. Uh, don't make decisions because, you know, there might be a very hot sector or a hot prospect or something like that. Um, the economy is cyclical, so it, it, it goes in cycles, and so does technology, and so do investment opportunities. And, you know, what you miss today, uh, you know, that might be an opportunity tomorrow. There will almost certainly be an opportunity mm -hmm. tomorrow. And uh, Philip, how uh, did you source the deals? Like how you find those opportunities? Great question. So um, for, um, I, there's like the, there, there are multiple ways of answering this question. Just, just to give you an example, right now on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. uh, I'm getting about one pitch a day, sometimes two pitches per day. And these are unsolicited. These are people who, for whatever reason, see profile, they think I might be able to help. So they, they contact me and they send me their, their pitch. Mm -hmm. um, I participate in a lot of different organizations, uh, like entrepreneurship competitions, pitching competitions, and things like that. So that's a second, you know, great source of ideas. Um, I work with universities, and there's some, you know, great research, which can be commercialized and, and, and really has great potential. But at the end of the day, I found most interestingly that uh, it's other people's introductions and other people's recommendations, which are really, really important. So if I take the past three investments I've made, they have all come to me through uh, introductions by other friends who are either investing or, um, or, or, or looking at investing in the same startup. So it's important yeah. to have good friends. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Agree. Um, and one one last question for this part: uh, Are there any regions or industries that you find particularly promising for investment opportunities? That is a great question. Um, yes. So I think that there are there are many sectors of the economy which are today managed. Um, and, and, and to make the statement, you basically have to have consulted on a large number of companies. But uh, th there are many companies which are managed today in the same way with the same economic model as they fundamentally were managed 40 or 50 years ago. So pre-internet. So if you look at a lot of professional services like the legal sector, the accounting sector, if you look at the tourism sector, particularly the hotel sector, if you look at restaurants in Horeca, um, for a lot of these sectors, the full impact of digital transformation and technology has not yet hit. So let me give you an example. Um, I'm a member of probably mm -hmm. eight hotel loyal clubs, Hilton, Radisson, um, Starwood, which is now Marriott, um, you know, and, and, and I tend to stay at the same hotels. Uh, have I ever gotten, you know, an offer from one of those hotels? No, uh, which is quite strange. Um, I guess despite the loyalty program, they think that they can just rely on my business without, you know, without really having to, to fight for it. But today in the tech world, you know, um, there's so many solutions we can have for better customer relationships, for better customer analytics, for things like, um, you know, yield management, for trying to get a better average daily rate and so on and so forth. And, and it's strange that for many 
organizations, they are not really using this functionality, even if they already have it on their, say, their hotel booking engine or on their central reservation system. So I find it fascinating that on the one hand, uh, there's vast segments of the economy which are working, as I said, largely in the same way as they were 40 or 50 years ago. But then on top of that, look at the impact that AI and uh, you know artificial intelligence, virtual reality, machine learning, Internet of Things, look at the impact that these things are going to have on these sectors. I mean, if you take the accounting sector, I estimate that 90% of effort in, a, in an average accountancy is essentially expenditure accounting, right? So your client gives you all of their expenditure, and as an accountant, it's your task to make sure it's put in the right category so the government can get its, you know, its tax allocation. Um, all of that will be automated. It can already be automated now with, with bank account reconciliation and everything. And in the future, it will, it's just going to be a fact. You know, we, we will not have to do um, this, the, you know, this very boring, repetitive work, uh, which also you know, has a lot of mistakes in it. So if I'm an accountant, I would be thinking right now, wow, you know, in five years, within five years, you know, the very operating fabric of my sector is going to change. How am I going to respond to that? If I'm a hotel owner, right, you go to the average hotel website, what do you see? You see two-dimensional photos. Sometimes you see a video or a drone, um, you know, a, a very short clip. Sometimes you see one of these 360-degree photos, which has been stitched together. But, you know, there's so many more ways of promoting a hotel today, including virtual or augmented reality. And when is the last time you saw, like, an, let's say a... You know, let's say a walkthrough of the lunch buffet of a hotel, right? And you've got your goggles or, 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 or other, other, other means of interaction. And, you know, you can look at one item on the menu. It can tell you the calories. It can tell you what the product is. It can tell you if there are any allergens. This is something so totally basic that, um, you know, I'm just wondering why it hasn't been implemented. Um, imagine if you're a city and, you, you know, you want to do like, um, I don't know, roots of Byzantine churches, you know, because you have like maybe three or four Byzantine churches within your city limits. Well, augmented reality is, is, is an amazing way to do that because people who come up in front of the church, they can not only be guided to the church, but when they're in the church, when they're outside the church, you can give them a complete interactive guide, um, which is going to be vastly superior typically to what, you know, the information they can get themselves. So there's all this technology um, it's, it's both very existing stable technology, it's also emerging technology, but for some reason it's not being used. So, for instance, I'm personally very interested in the area of VR and AR for the hotel sector. I would love to invest a startup mm. in that space. Um, and, you know, there, there, there are a lot of other areas like this, which uh, I, I just see that are in dire need of transformation, but where for whatever reason <laughs> things are going very slowly. Yeah, so once we have these kind of startups, I will let you know. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Philip, for your inputs. And uh, yeah, we'll be back for the first part. So, Philip, we are back for the first part where we ask uh, three very quick questions. So we okay. expect short answers uh, and the ones that are not that well uh, thought through. So um, 
the first one is what is the most rewarding thing for you in angel investing believing in young people oh very precise what would you advise someone who is just starting angel investing never invest more than you're prepared to lose and and don't invest for money Uh, what is the primary factor for you when you uh, look at the startup and you're evaluating it? What's the one most important thing you look at? It's actually tied and sorry, sorry about that. But the, the, the first most important is the team and the quality of the team. Mm -hmm. And the second is the social or the business utility of the solution. Yeah. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Philip. This has been really interesting and useful conversation. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm really impressed by Armenia and by the work that Bana is doing. And really, congratulations. There's some great startups here. Hope you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful. Please subscribe to our podcast to keep up with our future episodes. Join our Telegram channel where we share information on our episodes, meetups, events, and webinars with angel investors, as well as relevant materials on the topic. If you have a question, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn. Help spread the word about angel investing by sharing this video with your network. You might be the one who inspires the next successful angel investor. It's time to grow your wings. See you soon.